Hello, this is Dominic Steele, and this is The Pastor's Heart, and we're on location in the dungeon of St. Paul's Carlingford today, where the Nexus Conference, a conference of 400 or so ministers, is going on upstairs, and one of the main presenters is Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington. Mark, it's great to have you with us, and uh, you're speaking on evangelism, um, and so why don't we just ask you a few questions about evangelism. Um, it feels here in Australia both as, as if externally evangelism has got harder, but also we're feeling like our hearts have gone off the boil a bit. Mm. What's it like where you're at in, the, in, well, in Washington? In yeah. the... uh, I think that we face some similar cultural challenges to what you're looking at here, the way becoming a Christian now seems to be a statement that is morally unpopular mm-hmm. with the culture at large, when 20 years ago, it would have been seen to be a good thing, even if it's not something that I personally am going to do. Yeah, if you're doing that, you're devoting your life to something good. Because of questions uh, in America, heated questions around abortion mm-hmm. and women's reproductive rights, as, uh, as advocates of abortion will call it, and gender issues, there are now uh, more people who are openly opposed to affirming traditional Christianity and who do not see it as a kind, loving, merciful system that encourages good works, mm. but who see it as, uh, to use some of the more extreme language, even hate speech, bigoted because of our opposition to homosexuality, same-sex marriage, abortion rights, I could go on, mm. things like that, that are really demonized. Our Christian, traditional Christian positions are demonized by the, the secular left. Mm. Now, as, as you say, that I think the little patch of Sydney that I'm ministering in, in which is right in the inner city and pretty upstream uh, for Australia, and yet you're even more upstream, being right there in the centre of Washington. Um, how do you feel like it's different in... You're experiencing more of the, the cultural change there, or it comes first to you in central New York and then trickles down into the rest of the country. Do you want to talk to about Well, that? since I live there, I may not be actually a good one to talk about that right. because it's what I, I, I literally live there. I live on the same block as the church and I, our church has been there for 140 years and we live four blocks behind the Supreme Court, five blocks from the state, from the mm-hmm. U.S. Capitol building. So I'm kind of in the middle of the, you know, the, the swirling mess and that brings in conservative Christians from all over the country mm-hmm. who want to see their values represented in the government, but it also, of course, has a lot of other people who are there to work in the government and who disagree with those same values. So it's simply the reality I've known for a long time, and I don't assume that every place else in America feels the same kind of uh, tearing conflict that I think our members regularly face at the workplace in their relationships with their neighbors. Though I think there are many other places in America, and I assume here in Australia, where people do face that, that same kind of conflict yeah. differently than they would have, we, we did, say, 20 years ago. Mm. Can you tell me how your preaching has changed as, as, you, when, if you, as you think about an evangelistic talk that you give today in 2019 compared to one you might have given in 2009 or even 1999 at Capitol Hill Baptist? Mm. Probably not much at all. Um, I mean, the gospel wouldn't have changed, but the, but the, the nuance of how yeah, you actually communicate. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not much at all. Uh, I maybe am going to be digging underneath the foundations a little bit more 
assuming that what I'm going to say is a little bit further away from or even more unexpected by non-Christians, so that I have to take account of that in the way I reference God or his holiness, maybe use the word goodness more, simple things like that, uh, trying to give examples of what I mean by that. Um, so I just I feel like I can assume a little bit less. Mm-hmm. So it's probably very similar, but I probably will take longer and will spend more time filling in background. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. I also am going to try to lodge questions Socratically in the minds of the unbeliever. But I was doing that also 20 years ago. The questions might be a little bit different. Yeah, so how, what, what kind of questions now compared to before? Uh, I, I think I was working on these same issues 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the cultural winds, while we may be in a different place, I think the cultural winds have been blowing the same way my entire adult life. Right. Okay. So I've probably been tacking in my evangelism pretty similarly, like trying to raise the possibility of absolute truth, the goodness of knowing purpose, uh, issues really, the same issues for my entire adult life, mm-hmm. though we are in a more, in the U.S., in a more advanced state of decline from having those issues largely culturally assumed in a Christian-friendly way. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned in your address at Nexus the normal, normalcy of persecution. Yeah. Uh, do you want to unpack that for us? Yeah, yeah, I think sometimes, at least in the West and the U.S., we in uh, our churches will feel like normal is us being respected by everyone, being elected mayor and governor and president and being uh, looked up to morally. And if something, if, if a situation is going to come along that's going to change that, give us a different kind of a, a lower status, a more rejectedness in the culture, then we feel like, whoa, something's wrong. Something's like, we need to fix this. And I think what I'm trying to help folks realize is that biblically, Jesus told his followers when he was on earth that if he were persecuted, they should expect persecution. So really, when you look at the Gospels and the teaching of the Gospels, and then when you see what happens in Acts, and you read the letters of Paul and Peter, you see that this kind and, and John, you see these, this kind of persecution that we experience in spots today in the West is normal in the experience of Christians. And we know that many of our brothers and sisters around the world today in northern India, in China, in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, uh, in so many parts of the Arabic world, uh, experience a kind of persecution. <clears throat> Sometimes uh, themselves, uh, other times seen more clearly if a Muslim becomes a Christian or a member of the Communist Party is baptized or a, a Confucianist or a Buddhist uh, publicly is baptized and identifies as a Christian, just in different parts around the world, that, that's, uh, that brings a kind of level of opposition that Christians out of those backgrounds have long experience with. We in the West are surprised by that when we get a little taste of what many Christians around the world have mm. experienced for decades and even Three centuries. Christians massacred in Nigeria in the last Yeah, time. yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, what can we do to lessen the obstacles to our ability to speak about Christ? Well, the obstacles that you think of could be larger cultural obstacles, which will have little effect, which will have little authority over. Though there are maybe some things we can do, and they'll be kind of more personal obstacles. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> the larger cultural ones, we can try to be. 
uh, proponents for freedom of expression uh, to explain why uh, hypocrisy is not a good thing to enforce legally on people, to make people try to speak certain acceptable things when they really think something else. Far better to hear what somebody really thinks and then reason with them. So we can be proponents for reasonableness mm-hmm. and openness and uh, an ability to share cognitively with others. And in personal sense, we can try to make sure that we're not living openly hypocritical lives that would put obstacles in the way of our being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ um, or that we are living lives in any other way that are not commending the gospel or that are obscuring our following of Christ so that no one would have any reason to listen to us talk about being a Christian. Hmm. Can I ask you, on the big picture, as you think pastoring Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I want to ask you about your evangelism strategy there and what, what you do as a strategy. Yep. Then after that, I'm going to talk about how you encourage individual members yep. you know, in their personal evangelism. So let's, let's start with how you guys think about, I mean, it's a pastor's workshop and you're wanting to get us to think about yeah. our evangelism strategy and you're kind of laying out what yours is. Yeah. Uh, our strategy is, is not a, a document, it's not a vision statement or a mission statement. It's simply the, the culture in our church to be evangelistic. That's what I work for and mm-hmm. pray for. I want to be an evangelist in my own life. I want to have literature circulating on evangelism. I want to my sermon be a model for how I speak to non-Christians mm-hmm. in every sermon. Uh, I want to see people be converted, and then when they're converted at their baptism, they'll share their testimony. I want members of the church to share testimonies on Sunday night in our prayer meeting about what they're doing among their families or their neighborhood or school or workplace in evangelism. Share that with others so we pray for that so that others can hear that and get ideas then about what they do. I encourage the members to email me in examples of evangelism so that I can get, in, get some of them to share those with others. We do have various courses that we'll lay on on Sunday mornings at 9.30, an hour before our service, to teach people about evangelism, like Two Ways to Live. Mm-hmm. Well, as you mentioned Two Ways to Live, I mean, at the Nexus Conference, you spoke about um, some of the impact some various things from Australia had had on you, and, um, and you, through Nine Marks and other things, will have an impact over here. But perhaps you could just share for a little bit about... Um, uh, how Australian Christianity has fed into evangelicalism and the evangelical cause in the United States? Well, I think probably the most popular Australian export in recent years has been The Trellis and the Vine. Mm -hmm. Uh, That book has been promoted and used widely as a way to kind of zero base uh, ministry back to one-on-one or individual personal, the vine, Mm -hmm. personal work, as opposed to concentrating on the trellis. It's been a very useful book for us. Uh, there's also the older work of Two Ways to Live, mm-hmm. which we use, which others uh, around the country in the U.S. use. Your city is obviously a super political city. How do you manage to navigate not being, I mean, and I presume therefore your church is full of people who have strong views about politics from a massive variety of spectrums. That's you true. Know? How do you how do you manage to navigate that? Well, I, I kind of have a you know one 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 wall protecting me in that sense, in that we're Christians, so we don't have all political perspectives. So if, if you think that abortion is a right uh, of a woman, if you think that uh, same sex marriage should be legalized, you're probably going to have uh, 
anywhere from an impossible to a very difficult time in our church. Mm-hmm. So as more of the political conversation moves into advocating that, we can't go there. So when I got to D.C. into this church back in the 90s, except for the official advocacy of abortion by the Democratic Party, even then there were many pro-life Democrats, mm-hmm. a lot with a Roman Catholic background. So you could easily have in our church lots of Democrats and lots of Republicans. Uh, I would say the Democratic Party's shift in a more secular direction in the last 10 years about both the advocacy of abortion. I mean, mean, this year it's been crazy, the kind of bills they've introduced in state legislatures about even killing babies after they're born. Just horrendous Mm. stuff. Uh, And the the sudden switch in the mid-20-teens on same-sex marriage has meant that for evangelical Christians, the Democratic Party has become much more difficult uh, for us to see how we can well be involved. Even if we agree with the Democratic Party on some of their other traditional positions as opposed to the Republican Party. Uh, My fear is that the Republican Party is simply going to go the same way because that's the way the electorate in America seems to be going. And I don't know that the Republican Party has any particular principles um, other than getting elected in the same way the Democratic Party does. You mentioned in your presentation economic or democratic stewardship. What did you mean by that? Yeah, Yeah. Uh, it's interesting reading the New Testament was written in a period where the Christians were under a tyranny. Mm -hmm. So Paul had no chance for any kind of overt political activism. There was nothing, you couldn't do that. Um, We, on the other hand, don't have to rebel against the government and break Romans 13 in order to want, say, a change in our government. We can publicly advocate for different laws. We can argue for them. We can help to pay for them being advocated for. We can associate together in parties that push certain ones. We can uh, take up our positions ourselves of authority in local government, in state government, in national government where we advocate for change, and all of that is not disagreeing with submitting to the government. Mm -hmm. So even when we vote, we have a certain kind of authority. And that that voting, that authority, we are to use as Christians. We're stewards of it. We can do good things with it. It's been entrusted to us. It's like our time, like our money. Well, in democratic cultures, we also have part responsibility for what's done politically. And we should be good stewards of that. We should vote conscientiously. Mm-hmm. Now, in your presentation, you talk mainly about, if you like, the blockages or the hindrances or the things that were going on externally for the, ch- for the church yeah. that have hindered our evangelistic work. Have you noticed a culture change internally in the church that has made evangelism harder? Well, I think, I think it's part of the larger change. I think there is a subjectivism It's more in the waters where people's natural assumption is something is good for me. That's something may or may not be good for you. So there might be even more tolerance on the part of the non-Christian listening to us talk about the gospel. So long as we're talking about what's good for me and what works for me. But the moment we cross over and start telling you what's the case for you, that you are under the judgment of God, that you need a Savior, that God has provided a Savior for you in Christ, that's... uh, that's increasingly sort of outside the bounds mm. of what would be allowed in polite conversation. Mm. Mm. Now, we're on the pastor's heart, yeah. and uh, we, we ask 
our guests to share some of their heart of uh, where God has particularly worked in your journey. Do you, do you want to just help us with that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's been uh, a wonderful but challenging thing to be the pastor of the same church for 25 years. Uh, you know, you continue being a husband and a father, even while things are happening that may be difficult in your marriage or in your family. And uh, the Lord shows himself faithful in that. Uh, yeah, it makes it very clear this world is not your home uh, when your wife or your kids undergo suffering and you would like to see people respond a certain way or the situation resolve a certain way when it, when it doesn't. Uh, but that's where we get to be models of the very kinds of things we preach about. So, yeah, those are definitely going to be the kind of things that would be closest to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but because they involve people who are really alive right now and are mm-hmm. still making decisions, they're not the kind of things you can talk about in media like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because there are people who are still making real decisions and still thinking through things. Yeah. Mark, thanks very much for talking to us today. Thank you, Dominic. Mark Dever has been my guest, the Senior Pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist, uh, and you're watching or listening to The Pastor's Heart. Hi, Dominic Steele coming to you from the University Church in Oxford, England. And this pillar on my right, you see that niche cut out? A platform had been built right here for the trial of Thomas Cranmer. He stood right here and recanted his recantations. Previously he'd said, I don't believe in the Protestant faith, but now he said, no, I do. I do believe in faith alone. I do believe in grace alone. I do believe in the Bible alone, and I do believe in Christ alone. The course we've got out, Ideas That Change the World, we're looking at all those four ideas, plus the thinkers Cramner, Luther, Calvin, and William Tyndale. I hope you'll do the course in your Bible study group, Ideas That Change the World. Hey, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would love it if you could hop over to the Apple Podcasts app and give us a rating and review. That helps us in the rankings and lets other people discover the pastor's heart. And again, if you are able to help us out by being a financial partner, go to our Patreon link, patreon.com slash the pastor's heart.